following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. It's great to have a good crowd here to worship. And uh, if you're visiting today, thank you for coming. Lord bless you. Good to see some familiar faces back after a few weeks away. It's good. Our scripture reading this morning is in Isaiah chapter 62. If you'd turn there and follow along as we have the public reading of God's word. After this, we'll ask the ushers to come forward and pray for the offering and then ask John to come and share his musical ministry. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent, and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine, for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it, and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. Very good. Let's turn our Bibles to Titus. You warm up your voice for a few amens. Very good. I'll do my part. You'll do your part. That's right. That's the best. Titus 2, please. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Uh, This will be maybe our fourth message in the book of Titus. We've completed our studies in chapter 1 for now. Paul turns his attention to how, in more detail, how the elders in the island of Crete are going to deal with the very difficult problems that they face there in that place. 
this uh, message and probably the next one are going to have some interesting things in them that uh, are very countercultural, and I hope that you will be uh, in tune with God's Word on those and enjoy learning them and reviewing them uh, together with me. <clears throat> you might imagine that the Apostle Paul here is telling Titus to go to all the churches and teach them these things that he's about to tell them. In fact, let's read chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Paul says, But as for you, now those words are very important because they connect to the prior chapter, and I will mention that in just a moment. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things." So as I was beginning to introduce this, I said, you might imagine Paul's telling Timothy or Titus, rather, go to all these churches and teach them all these things. And that is uh, possible, but I suspect that the Apostle Paul is reminding Titus what he's to teach these elders as he appoints them in the churches that they are to teach to the churches. Okay, you with me? Just uh, one level of, of indirection here. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2 says, And the things that you've heard, this is to T- Timothy, of course, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it was not enough that Titus would go to the churches and teach this, but he had to make sure that the elders were prepared and knew what they should be teaching to the people on the island of Crete so they could pass this sound doctrine to all of the churches and thus multiply Titus' efforts so that he could reach more and more churches in that island. Remember how big we said that island was? Like the area of southeast Michigan. Well, there's a lot of space there. Could be a lot of churches there. Not a job just for one man to, uh, to take that up. But whatever the case, whether Titus did some of this teaching directly or taught the pastors, the elders that he was appointing, more likely, I think, uh, the, the, the things that Paul teaches here and that Titus taught, the less experienced pastors, are the same things that we are to teach in our churches today. Same exact things. Now note here, he says, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not just information, okay? It's, It's not just, you know, some complex theological topic that you learn and, you know, third-year seminary at the graduate level. It's not just that. Sound doctrine is what we live by, what we live by. Going back to Timothy again, don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, so doctrine is not just you know, the hypostatic union or uh, the, the, the two natures of Christ or the, tr- the Trinity or uh, you know, baptism by immersion for believers, all that information. It's actually what we live by. It's what we practice. It is teaching us, well, as chapter 2 will say, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's sound teaching. Now, let's lay the table or set the table here too by reminding ourselves there is nothing in this text which is culturally bound or irrelevant today. These truths that Timothy or Titus rather is receiving from Paul are always fitting for sound teaching in every age, in every church, in every culture, for all time. They're always proper for healthy doctrine. Without these truths or the opposite ideas today, you would have an incomplete spiritual nutrition, you'd have unhealthy doctrine, and even poisonous teaching. Okay? Titus is to address, and the teachers there are to address the various tracks, I'll call them, uh, using an educational term, age tracking, or Sunday school, a tracked Sunday school means you have Sunday schools with different age groups of children in different classrooms, depending on their abilities to read or understand things. The various tracks in the church based on age and social standing were to be addressed in these uh, teachings, and he, had, he has several categories. He has older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and he has servants or slaves. And so everybody's covered in one way or another in the instruction here. The instruction covers everybody in the adult category and by implication the children as well because they're preparing to enter into the adult uh, stage of life. That's what we're doing. We're raising young adults. We're not just raising kids to remain kids. Um, it's helpful to notice here an important big picture point. Think with me back to our previous lessons in chapter 1. What was Titus dealing with in Crete? What kind of teachers and what kind of citizens? Remember the teachers were insubordinate. Look at verse 10. Idle talkers, deceivers, false doctrine of the circumcision, Uh, They subverted whole households. They taught things they ought not to teach. But as for you, that's the connection of those words at the beginning of chapter 2. Titus, you're not to be that way at all. Or look at verse number 12 again. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Liars ever, remember the paraphrase said, and lazy beasts, lazy gluttons. These are the kind of citizens that were being addressed in the ministry of the churches in Crete. But as for you, you're not to be like that at all. You're not to be like the false teachers, Titus, and you're not to be teaching in a way that coddles the people who are living in this, in this regard. I mean, compare, for example, Titus's teaching sound doctrine as opposed to, look at verse number... Um, 14, 
Jewish fables and commandments of men. You see that strong contrast there? You have these false teachers coming along and and teaching Jewish legend and commandments that are originated in man's mind and heart. And then you have Titus, who's teaching what? Older men to be reverent. Older women to be responsible and to teach younger women to be homemakers and chaste and younger men to be sober-minded, not believing legends and commandments of men and being liars and gluttons and all of that. So really what you have here is Paul saying, your job is diametrically opposed to what the people in Crete are getting naturally uh, in their culture. A very strong kind of uh, contrast. And compared to the pattern of lying, evil, and laziness generally found on Crete, Titus is to teach the people to be sober, faithful, teachers of good things, chaste, loving, faithful, patient. Those are expectations of the people of God. And so that's what he gives them. So what a contrast that is. And I, that, that may be maybe the most important kind of big picture point you can take away from the message today uh, to, to remember. Now, he begins in verse number 2 with the specifics. And we'll look at a few of these in the time we have this morning. He starts with the older men. Now, who are the older men? Uh, well, one source suggested older men were, they, they kind of had a division of age groups. They had seven different groupings. One, uh, I think it was Hippocrates. And, and, and one of them, I think it was number six, was the older men, this word, from 50 to 56 years old. Is that all? Yeah, sorry, brother. <laughs> That's bad news for some of us. <laughs> Um, you just missed it. <laughs> so 50 to 56 is a little too specific, I think, uh, for this. Paul is, is really dividing up all of the adults into four categories, or two age groups, two age categories, younger and older. So it's very generic. It's not specific. You can't like go into the Greek dictionary and find, oh, this word is for people who are 49 to 57 years old. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's a more general, broader kind of category. Uh, may I suggest uh, with shorter lifespans and harder living conditions that if you were 40 and up, you were probably considered an older man? You wouldn't be considered a young man. Like if you're 20, you know, if, if the lifespan is 60, by the time you're 40, you're past midlife, right? Uh, if the lifespan... I mean, if it was 60, that might be generous. Maybe it was 50. Maybe it was 40. In some places and times in our country's history, I mean, lifespan for a man was under 50. I mean, now we think under 50. I mean, that's dying young. I agree. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just something to think about that, that issue. But older men, so if you think, well, you know, I'm 35, I'm 40 or 45, I'm not in that category yet. I don't have to worry, you know. No, this is a different kind of categorization than what we think about. So, you know, it would seem if you get married by the time you're 20 and you have children, by the time you're 45, it's, it'd be very hard to call you a young man. You have grown children by that time. So... Uh, with marriage age being much younger. I'll comment on that when we get to the younger women section a little bit more. But 
So older men, don't excuse yourself from this category if you're getting close to this age. And besides, you know what? If you're a younger man and God is gracious to you, pretty soon you're going to be an older man. Whatever category you're in, all of this applies to you. Okay? Yeah, even you, you know, 12 and 14-year-olds over there, you know, sorry, can't let you off the hook. You are too looking to be sober, reverent, temperate, and all of these things. You're being brought up to be this way. Um, Sober, the first one here, uh, is an issue focused especially on alcohol, but it can also mean self-restrained and self-controlled in a more general sense. Now, it would seem, you would think, that older guys, you know, mellow out a little bit and they wouldn't, you know, be so wild or whatever like the younger men. But midlife crises, substance use, wasteful financial habits, or other things can weigh against that conclusion. And you have older guys that you just say, oh, why are they doing that? (laughs) That kind of thing with their life. Can't they settle down a little bit and and behave a little more sober-minded in their conduct and their thinking? So, he says, These, the guys in your church are to be sober-minded. They're to be reverent, secondly, the text says in verse number 2. This means dignified and honorable, worthy of respect, serious, not trivial, not silly, not dramatic, uh, you know, respectable, upright-standing people, reverent people, godly People. They're also temperate, that means sensible or self-control. And that concept is found over and over again in this context of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And we probably should park there for a moment. I didn't plan to do that in my, my notes, but just think with me for a moment about self-control. You can control yourself. You're a believer? You can control yourself. Not only can you, must you? You have to. You have to control yourself, your, the actions of your feet and your hands, the actions of your eyes, the thoughts of your mind. Boy, we had a fascinating conversation a couple Saturdays ago about that, didn't we? About how we can discipline our minds and how we are responsible for the sin of our minds at all times, day or night. We have a problem with the sin nature that wants to just overrun us but we must be controlled, temperate, not, you know, wild and out there. I think this can apply to some of what we see today of, you know, people that get, well, we kind of talked about something like this this morning, you know, really all into politics, like this is going to be the solution to the world's problems, or all into the conspiracy theories about, you know, this or that thing, especially with COVID and vaccines and all of that. We need to have temperate minds. We need to have self-controlled minds. We need to have measured, reasonable, sober minds about all things. Then Paul says to Titus, teach them to be not only sober, reverent, temperate, but sound in faith, love, and patience. These uh, are really the three that are like faith, hope, and love. These are the triad, faith, uh, hope, or love, and patience, which are basically like faith, hope, and love. You see those in several passages in the Bible. 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians have a couple of mentions of them. Um, And this is the same word that is used when Titus is told in verse 1, sound doctrine, sound faith, healthful, not helpful, 
message. It is that, but health-giving, healthy teaching. And the older men must be sound like that, not sound as the dollar. Okay, that's a, that's a really messed up analogy today. Uh, sound as the Bible. Sound as the Bible. Okay, older men. A younger man should be able to go to an older Christian man and ask him for advice and know that he's safe. He's not going to get wacky advice about something. The, the, the man is going to give him uh, you know, the truth. He's going to give him the word of God. He's going to give him wisdom from life experience that will be like a proverb in his life and help him to live for God. That is how we should be sound in faith. Love and patience as well. So that's older men. We are to teach older men to be this way in the church. If you're in that category or headed to that category, gentlemen, then you need to be paying attention to this. Secondly, what do we teach the older women in the church? Well, we first have to ask ourselves, like we did at the beginning of the other section here, who are the older women? Okay, now here's where I really get myself into trouble, right? Yeah, be careful. Yeah, you want to come up here and explain this? No thanks, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, leave it to the clergy to do that job, right? Who exactly? Well, in modern Western culture, the pastor obviously can get himself into trouble because, you know, the adjective old is not considered a good thing. Everybody wants to be young. You know, everybody, everybody wants to be 19 or 29 or whatever the perfect age is. But in, the, in other cultures, being old was a good thing. Set your mind in that direction, you know. Being, being, an, old thing, being an older person, you have the wisdom of years. You have survived the rigors of youth, of childbearing, of marriage in the, in the, of even just making it through childhood. I mean, you know, if you died when you're seven or infant mortality was much higher, you know, that's quite something. And you're worthy of the respect of younger people if you're old. So I would say, again, as I did before, 40s and up would be, you know, the older women category. Now, especially if you think of younger women as these folks would have thought of younger women. I mean, if you start, again, a family in your teenage years, say you're 16, 17, 18, you're a woman, you have children, by the time you're 40 or 45, man, you might be having grandkids by then. So you wouldn't be considered a younger woman by that time. You've had life experience, adult years behind you. You may have older children, and you know by practice, by experience, how to live in a godless culture because you've experienced it and gone through it. And older women, maybe there are some in Crete who they haven't had the benefit of growing up in a Christian home. I bet that was most of them. So what do they do? They've got to get up to speed quickly on how they are to, how they are to be and behave in the church. So Paul says to them they are to be reverent in behavior. Uh, this is an interesting word. It, it's a two words kind of smashed together in the Greek language, and it means uh, somebody whose behavior is fitting to holiness. It's like um, when, you know, when some people out in the world say they come into a church, this happens to me, it's happened to me before, and just recently I've had this experience again where people who have somewhat of a, 
a history of, 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 of not um, being in the church or who are not in the church at all or who have uh, language uh, issues, shall we say, uh, you know, but when they come into the church, you think, oh, I can't, I can't say that or I can't tell that joke to the pastor or I can't, uh, I, you know, um, you know or, or maybe like when I was in the university, I'd have to tell folks, you know, and I'd rather have you, cu- you know, cu- cut down on the cussing a little bit in our shared cubicle space. And, uh, you know, I've heard it all, okay? Don't, don't think that I haven't, but it gets tiresome to keep hearing it after a while, you know? And, uh, and, and I think every other word being a cuss word is kind of dumb, you know? Express yourself a little more intelligently, okay? Just on that issue, but... Uh, reverend behavior would be like, okay, you know, now, hey, we're in the church. Don't say anything bad, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, mind yourself really carefully now because, you know, God's really here. You know, you don't want to mess up here because the bolt of lightning might come or something. Um, so, yeah, that's reverend in behavior. When you're approaching God, you're especially uh, mindful of that. Also, he says... Uh, of older women, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Now, you know what the word for slanderer is? Diabolos. Oh, the the mouth open emoticon just came out. Whoa. Don't be a devil. Right? Don't Don't be a gossip. Don't be somebody who speaks ill about people, who accuses other people. That's what the devil does. He's the accuser of the brothers, isn't he? He stands there night and day, and he he finds plenty of excuses, by the way, doesn't he? Too many. But Christ is there, our advocate, and he he helps us out of the bind that we always get ourselves into. Yeah, but don't be slanderers. Uh, Diabolos, older women do not need to do the devil's work with their mouth. Thirdly, not given to much wine. Not given to much wine. So you say, well, look, that you could drive a truck through that. I mean, it's not an absolute prohibition. So, yes, that's true. I mean, can you imagine saying to a culture where there's no chemical preservatives, pasteurization, or refrigeration, you can't touch any food or drink that has some level of fermentation in it? No, that's not realistic. There's going to be fermentation. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. In other words, you got to maybe have to cut down a little bit on the water that you're getting from the you know, river that runs by because it's got too many bacteria in it. You need something that will purify that water. Now, today, do we need that? No, you can go get a bottle of water, a bottle of soda, a bottle of juice. Water from your tap is pretty much in... In our culture, many places, drinkable might not taste the greatest, but it's not going to put you under or put you in bed for three days or something like that. So, uh, you know, not given to much wine. No, no absolute prohibition here, but what is always found in Scripture is that Christians are not to be addicted to anything. That connects to that sobriety again, that way of thinking. Alcohol clouds your mind messes with your behavior, and being long at it indicates a couple of things. One, if the alcoholic beverage was weak, you know, it wasn't 
Jack Daniels or something. It, it took a long time to get drunk, longer time to get the buzz, perhaps. But uh, it also, being long at the wine, indicates something else. And this will be touched on in the young women's section. That is laziness. You have time to sit around and drink? What are you doing with your life? Aren't there grandchildren to help raise? Aren't there volunteer works at the church to be done? Aren't there good works in the community that you can do? Is there a job? Is there something around the home? How are you, how are you long at the wine? Now, as you know, I've taught because our cultural context is different, and we can easily implement not only this, but even just drop alcohol altogether. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. We don't need to have it at all. So not given too much wine. Number four, he says in verse number three, teachers of good things. Teachers of good things. I'm afraid today some of our, some of our older women who came of age during the 60s and 70s perhaps uh, have in the culture, have a philosophy that they're teaching to the younger women and children, which is evil. An evil anti-biblical feminist philosophy that they're teaching to the young people, and you can probably read it in books and online and and, uh, self-help guides and all of those things. It's not a good thing. Uh, Teachers of good things. The direction of their teaching is toward the younger women in the church. Notice that, the teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. The beginning of verse number four. Now, when we read this... I think a lot of us in the modern church context think immediately of a women's ministry in the church. The women are to teach the other women. But there are several problems with this notion I want to bring to your attention. Women's ministries, as they practically exist, I'm not saying as they should or could exist, but practically as they exist, often focus on anything but the instructions given in verses 4 and following. Such women's ministries fall short of the mark. This is because perhaps the older women who were doing the teaching either did not practice, did not believe, or did not want to teach controversial things to the younger women. Well, let's just read those again. What would the older women be teaching? Older women teaches younger women to love your husband. Love your children, be discreet, be chaste, be a homemaker, be good, be obedient to your husband, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I think if you count those, there are seven characteristics. The longest of any of these lists, not that I'm placing a huge amount of importance on that, but it does take up the space and have these character traits listed. Another problem with the women's ministry or Bible study idea, even in the church, is that the woman's Bible study must not be the primary source of teaching that a woman gets because she's supposed to get most of her teaching from the pastors of the church, from listening to her husband. Remember 1 Corinthians 14.35, if she has a question, let her do what? Ask her husband at home, okay? Uh, and from her own study of the Word. So a woman's primary source of theological training in the church, and it, let's just start from the home and work our way out, is her own study of the Bible, her husband, and the teaching in the church generally. Okay, So that's why we do not have a women's um, Sunday school like some churches have and a men's Sunday school. Nope, all together. Okay? 
uh, in the church, receiving teaching from the pastor or from the designated teacher for that time. A woman can and should receive doctrinal teaching from the pastor or pastors, the teachers of the church. She should not be getting all her instruction from women's ministry and women's conferences and women's retreats and all of those sorts of things. Women's ministry is not a cure-all for the ills of life. Number three, the teaching Paul envisions here is not even a church-based women's ministry at all. Okay, so if you jump to the idea of a church-based women's ministry when you read this, you've kind of flopped to begin with. This teaching happens in day-to-day life, not in church, not in ladies' meetings, but in the home, in the community. The church should not need a specific ministry set aside for this kind of teaching because it should happen naturally all the time. Yet many older women do not want to tell others what to do or or maybe they don't care or they do not want conflict or they simply have been brought up and still believe the opposite of Bible teaching on these subjects. Now, your husband's a jerk. Leave him. Not love him. That's not what the Bible says. Um, Now, so it's interesting that Titus should not have to teach these topics listed in verse 5 to the young women because they should be well grounded in them by the older women in the church. Okay? Not a church ministry, a life ministry. I was telling our brother, I said, you know, the ministry of the church is not just what happens here. It's what happens when one of our own takes the skills that he's learned here and he goes and teaches somebody else those things. That's church ministry, isn't it? If you guys all do that, then you multiply the efforts of the pulpit by however many there are here, 60 or 70 people times. What? That's amazing that you can have that multiplicative effect on all the people that are around you. And so what we're actually doing here is what Ephesians 4 says. We are teaching to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the ministry? The ministry is not just done behind this line in the church. Okay, It's done out there, out there, everywhere by us. So this is an example of that. The older women are carrying out that ministry to the younger women. Now, what are they teaching the younger women? Okay, this is where we really get into trouble with our culture and with our own background being taught and being kind of imbibing what the culture gives to us. Now, again, this is a third category, third explanation of these age boundaries here. Not defined precisely, but clearly these are young wives. They have husbands, they have children, okay? of marriageable age. In ancient Rome, this could be as young as 12 years old for girls. I mean, they were able to have children by then, and 14 for boys. That's the kind of a young end, okay? But any teenage woman up to 20s would be considered young. The vast majority, this is just another example. It's a different time frame altogether, but another example. The vast majority of brides in the 1600s in Great Britain were 19 and older. Okay, very few. There were some 18, 17, 16, but not too many. Uh, So maybe we think of young women in the 19 to 29 category or 16 to 29 or 16 to 30 or something. Um, But if you do that, think about it. By the age of teenagerhood, young women should be prepared to be like this. Okay, you with me? They should be prepared to be like the description 
that is here. There's, there's no allowance for a wild period of life for a young person, either man or woman, after which they should settle down and start a family and wait until they're 35 to have kids and, and these sorts of things. Uh, such wild living, anyway, would lead only to regrets and may have serious life-altering consequences. So young women are, are instructed in sound Christian doctrine to do the following. Number one, what does it say? Love their husbands. I didn't miss anything, did I? <laughs> Love their husbands. Now you say, well, I mean, that's easy for me. I mean, my husband's a great guy. Um, imagine if your husband were picked for you. Ooh, ouch. That's how it often was, right? Your husband is picked for you, so it's not a romantic, you know, uh, kind of deal. It's life. Love your husband. Man, that's a different thought, isn't it? Um, so, you're commanded by God from heaven to love your husbands, whether he's a turkey or not. You know, love is a decision, as they say, a disposition, not merely a feeling. Now, it's awfully nice when the feeling comes along with the decision, right? But consider that instruction in a culture where the woman did not select her husband. You know, your parents decided for you. And it wasn't necessarily that, you know, they picked Prince Charming on, you know, upon whom you had a crush for the last five years. You know, like, oh, wow, this is perfect. You know? No, maybe it wasn't perfect. Maybe it wasn't just exactly what you had thought. Love your, love your husbands. But certainly today, you know, I've, I've heard it too many times. I, I, I cannot love him. I cannot love her. Oh, you can't. Well, what does the Bible say? You did before, right? Oh, well, yeah. What about now? Oh, no. The Bible says love your husband. Love your, love your wife also for men. It's plain teaching of Scripture. In other words, here we go back to that self-controlled thing. I know I have these feelings, of, but I'm not supposed to have those feelings. So I'm going to pull back from those feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to temper myself to not be upset all the time at him or her. I'm going to be self-controlled, and I'm going to realize God has told me to love. I mean, after all, if we really understand what love is, we understand God loved us when we were pretty, rotten, wicked, enemies, sinners, and he loved us anyway. He loved us in such a way that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life, would not perish. But... If, if we've been loved like that, then we should, I think God's trying to teach us how to love toward other people. So we're supposed to love our spouses here. Young women, love your husbands. Don't get all upset. Don't be angry all the time at them. Secondly, love your children. Now this, to me, this almost seems too obvious to say. However, I have to back off from that. Because it says this in 2 Timothy 3, in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers, this means people, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. There's that word, you know, slanderers again. Without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Some people love pleasure so much they don't want to have kids because kids are a pain in the neck. You don't want to interrupt their, you know, vacation-based lifestyle. 
or once they have children, they hate it. Some even go so far as to harm their children. That's not loving their children. So they're instru- we're instructed here, love your children. In the last times, people will love others. Natural family affection will go out the window. We're seeing it today, my friends. You know, love for parents, no. Love for children, no. Abused, all kinds of things. The love that a young mother has for her child is such a beautiful thing to see. That is what I pray propels her through the difficult times. Young boy or girl gets sick. Boy, that mother's love is put to the test. Uh, terrible twos or threes or fours or fives come. That is put to the test. Yes, love your children. So love your husbands. Love your children. Be discreet, number three. This is an adjective form of the word used for the young men that means self-controlled. And it's the same as the requirement of elders in the church, Titus 1.8, sober-minded, and of older men in, in uh, this chapter, verse number two, where we just were. Okay, discreet, this idea of self-controlled. She's able to curb her desires, to fence them in to the appropriate time and place in her life. Okay, she... she well, like in the Proverbs, there's the woman who seizes upon the, sinfully seizes upon the opportunity that her husband is away on a business trip and she wants to fulfill her lusts with another man. And so she becomes that strange woman in the book of Proverbs. No, this kind of woman, this Christian woman, fences in her desires and controls them, is sober-minded and says no to herself and to her desires and puts those desires in the right direction toward her husband. Fourthly, she's chaste, connected to this, bodily sexual purity. A wife is to be pure and to keep herself only for her husband, just like he is to be pure and keep himself only for his wife. Very simple, but uh, the temptations of the world are such that it becomes complicated. Number five, so we've gone to, uh, through loving husbands, loving children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers. Okay, this is probably the biggest debate today on this issue, a homemaker. The word is only used here in the New Testament, and it is literally a home worker. Okay, a person who works in the home. Now, it doesn't mean that a person works from home. You know the difference? In other words, it's not that they're employed by their employer and COVID has shut down the shared office space, so they're working from home. This is working in the home, okay? Somebody who works in the home, a woman whose job is to watch the house, keep the home, guard the house, stay at home, although obviously this includes being industrious with regard to going outside and bringing the things into the home that are needful. Read Proverbs 31. That virtuous woman is a very excellent example for us today. Uh, who is somebody who is successful, uh, diligent, uh, you could say uh, sharp on the business side of the equation and, and things like that. She, but the homemaker tends to her domestic responsibilities. She cares for her children. She does not go out to war. A man does that work, that dirty work. Women should not be tasked with that dirty job. A man in this context who would stay at home is shirking his responsibility. He's not doing his job. Uh, in military service, many countries mandatory service, 
uh, in our country is volunteer force, of course, but uh, still there's a distinction between the roles that God has made between the husband and the wife. Um, you know, there's a danger to having your wives go out into the workforce. You know what's out there in the workforce? Men. Some of them lecherous, sinful men. And that's a danger. That's a danger. So think twice about being so encouraged about sending your wife out to that environment. The whole idea of all of this is disfavored in our culture, but it's very favorable to God, and it's the plain teaching of God's Word. Uh, So let me go through several implications of this, and uh, when we run out of time, then I'll stop and we'll pick up next time. First of all, this means that when it says homemaker or worker in the home, it means that a homemaker actually works. Why do I emphasize that? Being at home is not being on a vacation. Now, there's a sense in which it's a luxury to be at home. You don't have to go out into the world. You don't have to chase the almighty dollar and all that sort of thing. But homemaking is not a luxury in that it is work. Some of the tasks are menial, repetitive, not exciting. But if you're keeping the home, you're doing that work. And I contrast this work with the idea, you know, I can sit at home, my husband is making the income, I can have just a life of vacation and, and uh, ease while he's doing the work and bringing in the bread, uh, and I can be on social media all the time, okay? If you are on social media all the time, you're not making home. You're not a home worker. You're disobeying this portion of Scripture. I'll just say it right out, and I mean it. There are too many people who are lazy, too many women who are lazy, too many men who are lazy too, but this is the section on women, so we'll get the men later. But this is, this is not a good thing. Turn off Facebook. A Facebook at home mom is the modern technological version of 1 Timothy 5.13. Do you know what that verse says? 1 Timothy 5.13, I'll just read it to you. It says this, and besides this is about the younger widows, They learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. You know, so today, just like you don't have to, people think, you don't have to go to church, you can do it online. Well, that's false. You're supposed to gather for the church meetings. But let's uh, grant the point for the sake of argument. Well, just like you can do that, you don't have to actually go from house to house. You can just go from Facebook page to Facebook page. And say this, and tell that, and repeat that, and oh, look at this, and all this time. You spend all this time doing nothing, worthless stuff. Okay, so house is dirty. If it's unkempt or unorganized, you don't want to have guests over. Hospitality is out of the question. You're not keeping the home. In that case, you're a dweller at home, not a worker at home. Secondly, this instruction about homemaking implies that husbands have to be responsible enough to maintain a family and home life where the wife does not have to go out and scratch up extra income all the time. She cannot be a homemaker if she's spending all her time working outside of the home. You know, if she's a factory worker, most of her waking hours. He, the husband, must work hard enough, long enough, two jobs if he has to, be educated enough, get educated if he's not. Everything that he can muster to make that happen. Third implication. 
Homemakers must be clever to use the resources that they have to support their family and make it easier on their husbands who are working outside of the home so they don't have to work so hard to keep up with the bills. A homemaking wife can use her time to save money. Time is money, right? To make food, grow food, invent better ways to do the things around the home, clip coupons, whatever. The opposite of this is the wife who goes out and spends like crazy, wants more, more, more. I've got to keep up with the Joneses. You know, husband, you need another promotion. We need to move and get a better job, bigger house. All the most expensive things we must have, then she's not doing her job in the home if that's her focus. Number four, a big part of work in the home is raising the children. Raising children, son and daughter, sons and daughters who live according to the scriptures, who are diligent, who have chores, who balance their lives properly, who do their schoolwork and homework. It means mom includes the children in things like Bible reading and study and teaches them everything she can in the precious few years that she has with them. Be systematic about it, not, ha- not haphazard. And finally, number five, a lot, of t- a lot of complaint is made today about women who say, what do you mean we can't be pastors? We want to be pulpiteers. We want to be those that provide pastoral care. I perceive in that mindset There's not so much emphasis placed on the fact that mothers play a crucial role in training up daughters and sons in the next generation to be those who are in their homes and leading the church, training their daughters to be the next workers at home and their sons to be providers, teaching their sons to be caring men who treat women properly, being godly men. If you're a woman who aspires to influence the work of God, do so through your children. If God has blessed you with them, raise them and teach them. This is how you can serve God without trying to step into a role that is off limits for you. So instead of saying, I'm going to be a pastor, no, be a mom who raises up a couple of pastors or missionaries. Be a mom who raises up a daughter or two who are content to be at home and to serve in the way that God has ordained for them to do. Okay, we move on just quickly from those implications of the homemaking instruction to the next ones. The next instruction says that they would be good, very general word, a young woman to be kind, a person of high standards and merit. And then it says to be obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So I'll just make a comment on this and we'll bring it to a close. Being obedient to your own husband. You know, everybody wants to take this out of the wedding vows today. Can't have that. It's not culturally appropriate. But it's in the traditional vows for a reason. Because God knew exactly where the problem areas would be in the home. God has appointed the husband as the head of the home and thus means the wife should follow and children should follow his godly leadership in the home. Of course, we must uh, encourage ourselves as men to have that godly leadership as inherent in us so that we're not leading in wrong ways. As always in the scriptures, this is ever the case, obedience is offered by the wife. Okay, It's that she, like in Ephesians, it says, submit yourself to your husband. It doesn't say he submits you to him. So 
It's right for the husband to expect his wife to be biblical in her conduct, but he cannot demand or force upon her this submission. The Christian virtue is voluntary submission to authority, where you lower yourself, not forced, not begrudging submission, but voluntary submission. And for your model, simply turn to the Gospels and look at what Christ did. Look at Philippians chapter 2, how he humbled himself from on high down to the lowest point of service, and then God exalted him. You want to be exalted before God? Humble yourselves before people. Now, it says here at the end, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What does that mean? Well, if a wife is not obedient to her husband, two, two results, two blasphemies can occur, if you, were, if you will. The word of God will be blamed not only by her husband, who may have been a pagan unbeliever at the time uh, when Titus was ministering there, if the home, if the wife was saved and the husband was not saved yet, and the society around them. So uh, picture a woman comes to faith in Christ, but she still acts like uh, she used to act toward her husband. You know, she's mean, always argumentative, not loving her husband, not obedient to her husband, not a homemaker, all those things. What is the husband going to say? A ready-made, built-in excuse. That's what Christianity is? No thanks, right? That's blasphemy. You have caused the word of God to be blasphemed by your poor conduct. And then the society will look in and say, oh, that's what a Christian lives like in the home? No, it doesn't work for me. That's not how it should be. So forget God. It says... Uh, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Think about that. How does your conduct match up to that standard? Now, finally, we close with this. Some have suggested that these thoughts are just that, thoughts, which were given by the Apostle Paul to accommodate the young church in Crete to the culture around them and to simply distinguish the church from the culture. And because they reason that our culture is different than this culture, okay, their, that culture was there, and so Paul taught this, our culture's up here, so we can teach something else, and that this instruction does not apply to us today. I reject that entirely, my friends. Someone uh, can try to suggest that idea, but they're not going to get very far here, nor in this pulpit. Okay, you can't simply say, I mean, and here's, here's what happens. Somebody says, look, I don't like that homemaking thing and all those implications that the pastor brought up. So I'm going to say that that was culturally bound and I can do something different today. But are you really going to be able to get away with that with discreet, chaste, good? Well, I don't like the obedient to husband thing, so I'll throw that out too. Um, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty good to love your husband and love your children, but if your husband is a jerk, no. You know, if your children, I mean, yeah, you start taking, what you do is you start picking and choosing, right? So how can you pick homemaking and obedient to husband and say, well, that's not culturally relevant to us today, but everything else works. What you've done is you've changed the authority from God and his word to you. 
to you. So an important question to ask yourself is, who is my authority? Who is my boss? Is it God or is it my faulty, sinful, finite, limited reason? And you, you need to be very, very, very careful if you start falling into that. Well, what you're doing is you're judging the Word of God. And uh, I don't want to be in your shoes when the judge of all the earth says, why you judge me and my word. So we've done our best here to try to lay out these instructions. They're very plain. They're very easy. The hard thing is to obey them. The hard thing is to accept, embrace, and obey them uh, in our lives, in our marriages. We have a young couple that's looking to be married just later this week, sitting in the back. I've given them counsel about this. I exhort you the same today. This is how you're going to have a successful marriage, my friends. And this is how you all are going to have successful lives if you older men, older women, younger women, and we didn't get to the younger men, but we'll get to them next time, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction in your word that is sound doctrine. It's health-giving doctrine. It keeps us on the right path. It protects us from ourselves. And I pray that you will help us to follow it carefully, to learn that you have said these things not for our hurt, but for our benefit. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.